Hello and welcome to the WAMDA podcast. My name is Triska Hamid and I'm the editor at WAMDA. So for the first time, I have a co-host today, my colleague Manish. Hi, Manish. Hi, Triska. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great that you're here. Um, tell us what you do at WAMDA. So at WAMDA, I work on the investment team. Our duties are wide. We work from anywhere from sourcing the deal to the initial screening, uh, assessing market opportunities, uh, assessing business models, looking, analyzing deals in greater detail, and then finally closing deals. So it's quite a wide process from our side. You're, you're the first port of call for startups, right? When they're coming in asking for investment. Yes, we do have the first, we have the first call with the founder and establish uh, something about the founder and about the business. Okay. How many pitches do you think you've seen since you started a few years ago? So I've started, I would say, two and a half years ago. Okay. And I would have seen, I think, 200 pitches so far. So it's, it's quite a bit, yeah. Okay, so when I told you that our guest would be Nicole Kamuth, the founder of Zerada, you got very excited. Why was that? So Zerada is a discount stock brokerage platform in India. If you've heard of Robinhood in the US, Zerada is very similar, but they started in India and they actually started before Robinhood did. So that, that's, that's the service that they provide. Why it's so exciting is that I've heard so much about it. Everyone uses it, everyone's heard of it, and they've never raised venture capital before. So when we look at these massive growth stories in the Western markets, in the MENA region, in Europe, they've always raised from top tier VCs, they've raised massive amounts of capital. This company has never raised external capital before. That's, and that's plainly mind blowing to me. And uh, when you look at their financials, they've, uh, they have margins of almost 40%. Those are, those are margins that we've not heard of before in the startup ecosystem, especially with fintechs. It's amazing. I think one of the most fascinating things about him is that he's a high school dropout. He left school at 14. So to have built a, a unicorn without raising an investment is incredible. So uh, let's find out how he did it. Hi, Nicole. Welcome to the WAMDA podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you. So your story is, I think, it could have been produced by Hollywood. Do you want to give us uh, an overview of how you got started and how you ended up becoming an entrepreneur? Yeah, so I, I'm from the southern part of India, from uh, Bangalore originally, the southern IT city in a way. Bangalore, that's where all the good startups are. Most of them, right? We must be doing something right. Yeah, so... At the very beginning of my life, my dad used to work for a bank. He was a bank manager at Kendra Bank, which is a government bank here in uh, India. Uh, he had a job which revolved around traveling a lot. Uh, so we would kind of shift the city we live in once every three or four years. So I've lived in many different pockets of India. Uh, some in the north, uh, lived in Delhi and a bunch of other cities. Before I moved to Bangalore when I, I was about 10. And ever since then, I've been in Bangalore. So I think uh, in many ways, I would call myself a Bangalore boy. Education, I went to a bunch of different schools. I went to uh, schools across the country by virtue of having traveled at that time. And ever since uh, the grade three or four, I was in Bangalore. Uh, I studied up until grade nine and quit formal education at grade nine. I used to play chess back in the day, about 
20 years now but back in the day i was fairly keen on becoming a chess player and attempted that for many years started playing professionally when i was about 14 uh, 13 14 quit education uh, tried to make it as a chess player and then realized there are many better players in the world and then gave up chess very quickly by the time i was 16 or 17 i stopped playing chess that was soon followed by a career in tiny businesses attempts at entrepreneurship started a phone business uh, a textile, a laundry business, tiny things like that. Also got a job in a call center. Can I ask you, how beneficial was the chess? What kind of skills did you pick up by playing chess? Honestly, Triska, it sounds like you would get a lot, but I don't really think so in practice. I think uh, chess is a lot about memory, uh, not uh, nothing to do with intelligence. Chess is more about remembering uh, end game, game theory, remembering all the openings or the games that have been played historically. So you can kind of recollect and do what another master might have done at that time because you're always uh, running against a clock in chess and you don't have time to think of all the possibilities. So chess is more memory. I, I guess chess gives you uh, a certain amount of structure. Uh, there are a bunch of basic rules in chess, which kind of uh, are correlated to business in many ways. I think uh, structure and discipline, I would say, is chess. And so when you decided to drop out of uh, school, how did the people around you react to that? So it's funny. I mean, dropping out of school has become cool today. Uh, but 20 years ago, it was not very cool. And I mean, dropping out of college is, to school, uh, is cool today back then. I think people didn't take it too well. But luckily for me, if you're dropping out of school to play chess, it's better than dropping out of school to start a business. Because then people think, okay, he's a smart kid and he'll become a chess player and stuff like that. So it wasn't too bad. Uh, I had like traditional, Brahmin is a sect of people in India. And Brahmins are very, very focused on education. So I come from like a traditional middle-class Brahmin family in India. So when I think back at it, I still don't know myself how they were as supportive as they were at that point. But I guess I got lucky and I could quit and uh, things worked out. And how old were you at this point when you- 14, 14. You were 14 when you dropped out of school. That's incredible. I mean, like, did, did you feel that you would miss out on anything? Did you feel like you'd had enough education that you needed in your life? I mean, were you not worried about that you, you, know, you, you didn't learn as much as you could have? I don't think I was thinking straight. I think 14-year-old kids are generally a bit dumb. And I was very much in that boat. And I think I just kind of did it because at that point it was, I don't know, maybe the cool thing to do. And uh, one thing you do realize in life, I think late, is whenever you talk to people or you're hanging out with a bunch of friends, Everybody kind of reminisces about their school days, their college days, and the friendships one built at that time. I think you, whoever is a dropout, you typically will go through life missing that whole aspect of your life because you don't have any friendships that other kids had in college and school and stuff like that. That's something I still think about sometimes because people do talk about that a lot, you know, how they had the best time of their life in college and how their best friends were... Uh, created in a way during college. 
So after you stopped playing chess, did you ever consider going back into education or did the entrepreneurship bug hit you? I think it was more an ego thing. The entrepreneurship bug did hit me and I started a bunch of things or attempting a bunch of things. But once you've not gone to school for two or three years, it is very hard to kind of go back to school and watch your classmates who are now three years your senior and doing other things. So it makes it a lot harder to go back to school. I must have thought about it, but uh, I don't know, some amount of ego did not allow me uh, to go back to school, I think. So those initial ventures that you started, how big a role did they play later on in your life? What were the lessons that you learned along the way? Honestly, I think the one common lesson in all of these ventures has been to time the market. I know nobody can call what will happen tomorrow or be in the right industry at the right time, but... I think I attempted things which were either ahead of the times or were kind of behind the times, but never at the moment what was the requirement. I might have started uh, business X, which could have worked five years down the line or five years predated to the time that I tried it, but nothing that was you know required at that time. So I think to pick an industry and uh, to actually research an industry Uh, and figure out what problem you want to solve. The picking the industry might be a bigger uh, metric of how well one does, even more so than the problem one is trying to solve. Traditionally, what founders are told, you know, before they go into entrepreneurship is to find a problem and then create the solution for it. But you're saying pick an industry instead rather than looking for a problem to fix. Yeah, I think pick an industry and then find a problem. Okay. So how how did you, I mean, you went through several different industries. How did you settle on fintech? Started off being a trader. I had a brother who was trading a bit already and that helped uh, become a trader very early. I started trading at the age of 17. Much like everyone else, I think uh, I had a couple of years where things went well. And then I had a couple of events where all that uh, time of making profits get wiped away very quickly. So leverage is a bad thing in the markets. And to a new investor who uses leverage, you can make a lot of money very fast, but you can also lose it very, very quickly. I fell prey to that a few times in my early formative years. I think that was the very uh, beginning of the whole trading journey. But one thing I really liked is unlike any other business or another job, the thing about trading is every a day is different. Nobody can really predict what happens tomorrow. So you walk into work every day, uh, not knowing what exactly will happen. That might have been the most alluring thing about trading for me. And uh, maybe one of the reasons why I stuck onto it and have been doing it for as long now. I mean, I guess for many founders, it's that unpredictability. It's it's the challenge every day of, of having to solve different problems. That's being able to do that is what makes a good founder. Is it also the kind of uh, as a trader, you're, you're, you tend to be alone. You don't really have a huge team behind you, right? Yeah, so trading is very much like a solo sport. I think it's like being a chef or a cook. Uh, You can throw 10 cooks at a problem at cooking a simple dish and it might not turn out better than if one of them had done it. Yeah, so trading is a little bit of a solo sport, but you definitely need a team to help you research and kind of arrive at the point where you need to pull the trigger and you pick A or B. I'm keen to understand all your 
past ventures, were they pretty much the the lone founder kind of uh, venture or did you from a very early age understand the importance of a team and hiring the right people around you? Not from a very early age, but a few years in the industry, I think I realized the power of having people who have skills which are very different from yours. So me and my brother have kind of been partners in everything we've done for about 14, 15 years now. But we do understand that, uh, you know, every generation is more evolved and there are uh, very many very smart people out there who are better at doing certain things than us, especially on the tech side, when you're trying to build a product. Uh, I think that's the key thing, you know, to hire the right tech people and the right uh, product developers. It took us a while to realize what kind of people we like and how we went about the hiring process and how we fine-tuned it. But now definitely, yeah, I think for everything I do, if I look far enough, I could easily find somebody who would do it better. Did you kind of try and upskill or reskill along the way? Did you pick up different types of education? I did a lot through experience. I think losing money or getting things wrong is one of the biggest teachers and one of the best teachers, I would say. Uh, So a lot learned through experience. And I do read a lot and I read about stuff that interests me at that time and this keeps changing every year or every couple of years I would read about something completely different and arcane and nothing to do with the industry I'm in but uh, I think experience has been the biggest teacher. How many times did you launch something and did they all fail or were there successes along the way? There were successes along the way. Most of the successes were in the fintech industry and Most of the fails were outside the fintech industry. That, I think, has kind of taught me to focus on being building something new, either in the industry I understand a little bit, or an ancillary one where a captive audience from X can be used for Y. I think, uh, so the focus in the last couple of years has definitely been fintech because of that. Let's talk about fintech. If you can give us an overview of the fintech sector in India, how it was when you first started, and what pushed you to, to launch Zeroda? Sure. So 16, 17 years ago, I think uh, industry was just moving from being uh, uh, offline, a lot of people involved. This could be any part of fintech. It could be lending, it could be broking, it could be wealth management, anything. So people were just kind of transitioning from being an industry wherein everything is done on paper with a lot of human capital and resources, where things got done over a telephone or whatever to kind of automating and computerizing in the traditional sense, the processes we used to do manually before. So that trend has continued. I think people have moved on to, people have realized how much of an advantage computing power, which human brain power can never match, has done and how much of efficiencies it has brought about in the ecosystem. And uh, I think back then it was just about going online, being available on mobile. The whole app industry was just kind of starting off in India. And that's when you had the idea to launch Zeroda? Yeah, Zeroda again was very organic. We were traders who would pay a lot in commissions 
to the brokers of the day. Uh, we decided one day that if we were to become a broker ourselves, we would save a significant amount of that cost that we pay to third party as brokerage. So we started off with that intention. Once we were a broker, people kind of asked us if they can use our platform as well, friends and family first. And then each person spoke about how much cheaper this is and how much better of an experience it is by not having uh, arcane, archaic fees. We made it very, very simple as a product. And the first few users, the first couple of thousand were definitely word of mouth. And everything has been organic ever since. We get new users, they ask us for a certain type of tool or a product, we build it for them. And we've kind of tried to build what we would have wanted as traders and people seem to have liked that. So that's interesting actually, because one of the challenges that we see with FinTech is the difficulty in acquiring users. I think you guys were quite early when it comes to the commission-free stock trading. Uh, I think you guys have been around before Robinhood. So was the ramp up in users easy for you? Were people ready to trust a company they haven't heard about before? So how do you see that in your, from your experience? Yeah, so credibility is the biggest thing for every startup or for every new company, but more so in our industry because people leave their savings with us and we are a place which keeps their capital or we hold their uh, assets in a way. It, it has been a slow organic process. I think the way we tried to counter this is being extremely transparent. And along the years, we've been around for about 11 years now under the Zero the banner. And I think around, uh, I don't know, six, seven years ago, people started to take us seriously. But the first four or five years, it was a lot of effort. You know, you had to like, uh, talk to every person and show him how uh, regulated we are and how, how kosher we are with the money they leave with us and how we charge fees, etc. So it's a, the credibility is always built with time, I think, Manish. And we did have to put in the time to earn a little bit of credibility that we do have today. Uh, were there any regulatory hurdles when you first started to form something like this? What challenges did you have to overcome as basically the first mover as a fintech provider of a solution like this? Regulatory hurdles in terms of how much we charged as brokerage, there weren't many. The regulator always has a maximum that a broker is allowed to charge. They don't care about the minimum. So we were charging one-tenth of what the incumbent brokers of the day were charging. So we didn't really have to worry too much about uh, regulation in terms of our differentiation, which back in the day was the pricing. Uh, what we realized very quickly is if you as a client of mine, if you buy a share or if you buy a million shares, uh, the work at the back end for the broker is incrementally not any different. It's the same amount of work that we have to put in immaterial of the transaction that you're doing. So we started that flat fee model where we would only charge like two or two and a half dollars to execute a transaction immaterial of the size of the transaction. So that made us very attractive to a lot of the large traders and people who trade for a living. And that was our first first pool, which came in because of the fees. Essentially, the first users of your offering were people who were trading regularly. So what was the second wave of users? Are you a millennial focused application now? Or do you still see a lot of traditional brokers using an application like yours? So along the way about 
six years, seven years ago, we kind of realized that our only USP cannot be cost. It's very easily replicatable. And many people did replicate our model and start doing exactly what we were doing. Uh, we got lucky in hiring our CTO. His name is Kailash at around that time. And we transitioned from being a broker where people were coming for transparency and low cost to being a product player. So we started building great uh, analytics software, uh, charting, uh, research, you know, backtesting software or order management engines. And people kind of saw the difference between us and the traditional players in terms of execution, how uncluttered our UIs were and the ease of using our platform. And we slowly transitioned into being more a product company where people come into us for our whole ecosystem of tools that will help a retail investor or a professional trade or invest. So, I mean, on, on the point of you talking about the research analytics, it being an ecosystem rather than, than just somewhere that people come and trade. So there's a lot of talk about consumer education, even from Western experts, uh, C founders, they constantly talk about the lack of consumer education. And one would think that that's the Western markets are more sophisticated than India or any other emerging market. So have you, uh, do you agree with them? Have you seen consumer education to be lacking when it comes to FinTech or is it a completely different experience uh, from, from what you've done at Zerodha? No, I would agree with that. I, I think the problem is more systemic. In India, for example, uh, even our formal education does not really teach students what to actually do with their finances. It gives you an education which is very generic and you, at the end of your college or whatever, are prepared for very little when you go into the work ecosystem. Uh, so India has a lot of people. Uh, I think we have about billion and a half almost today, but very few people in India actually pay tax. I would put that number at, you know, 5% or 6%. And a very small percentage of this invests in the stock markets, either directly or indirectly. So our ecosystem is only about 2% of our population. So education is probably the only way in which we can make this ecosystem larger. So even at that 2%, I think we're the third largest uh, stock market in the world in terms of turnover, just by virtue of how big the country and how many people we have. But education going forward will be more important than ever because we will really have to make uh, changes both in our educational policies and in ancillary education to make uh, the millennials and the generation uh, Zs of today uh, more literate, more financially literate in a pragmatic way where they can, you know, actually uh, manage their own portfolios and venture into the world of investing. Uh, room for the avenues for people to allocate capital to across the world are dying up in many ways uh, by virtue of interest rate cycles going down. Fixed income no longer gives you the yield it once did and real estate is not doing too well either. So the equity markets are probably a reasonable bet for everyone to have some amount of diversification or some allo allocation into this ecosystem of. But I think education is the only way to do that. We have something called Varsity, which is online free financial education, which has seen a great response over the last couple of years. But we will do a lot, a lot more and we hope the industry does a lot more to educate people and, you know, kind of get more people involved in our uh, ecosystem. Traditionally, this kind of financial education is, is limited to a very certain sector of societies around the world. 
What do you think will be the implications of providing that kind of education for people who have probably never traded at all, don't have that financial education? I think it democratizes investing in a way. It allows for a, for a larger cross-section of our uh, country or even globally uh, to take advantage of financial tools, which up until now have been available to a very small uh, portion of our population. So I think it's good. And I think the trend where, especially in countries like India or emerging markets, a growing middle class will bring in a lot more people into the financial markets. I think education is the piece which is missing in between the two. And somebody will come and fill it up. Our attempt is varsity. And we are trying to make people kind of who have formal education or college degrees in whatever field there is a gap between what education they have and the education someone who's a portfolio manager or somebody who's allocating funds onto the capital market has. We're trying to bridge that gap with Varsity. Also, I take the point of consumer education. Uh, I think consumer education is still a bit behind the technology that we have. We have access to the tools, but we don't have access to education so far on a, on a mass market level. So that always raises the question of uh, the ethical responsibility of a platform like Zeroda or Robinhood, where investors or potential investors have access to all these sophisticated tools they can access, stocks at a relatively cheap or maybe even uh, a free fees. Uh, they, can, they have access to margin trading tools, leverage. So who do you think the ethical responsibility lies with? Is it with the platform like Zeroda or do you guys just provide the product and uh, someone else should govern how you investors are acting or behaving on this product? I think the market kind of determines that. So much like everything else, if you're doing things correctly, you will make money. And if you're doing things incorrectly in the markets, you will probably lose money. So I don't think the burden of making sure people are doing the right thing should be placed on anyone. So not even a broker or the regulator or the government. I think the burden of educating an investor can lie upon all of us together. Uh, but what an investor does with his money eventually, I think it should work like an open market. You know, People should be allowed to do what they want to do while making sure that there is a certain amount of, uh, by making sure that the risk associated with each financial product is transparent and very visible to the investors who are coming in. Do you think something like a robo-advisory, which we've seen a lot, at, at least from where we are in Dubai, we've seen the robo-advisories come before platforms like Zeroda, where you can pick and choose stocks. Do you think robo-advisory should act as a gateway before people start picking stocks freely? Or do you think that they target completely different customers and they have their own roles to play within the ecosystem? So I have, personally, I don't think that's a good approach to take. The problem with robo-advisory is if a computer is generating a certain kind of model and uh, in turn executing a certain kind of system based on that, what typically we have seen is many models and many different systems will be predicting the same kind of result and placing the same kind of orders. I think this in real world terms, in theory, this sounds great, but in real world terms, I think the problem with it is when things go wrong, they become exponentially wrong because every computer, every robo-advisory firm is suggesting the exact same action at the same time. So I think it could create like a systemic risk to the entire ecosystem. Uh, there is a case to be made for why robo-advisory is useful, but does a robo-advisor 
have the tools at hand today to actually determine uh, what the risk of a investor is and what his profile is just by virtue of the few questions they ask when you sign up? I don't think so. So robo-advisory is great, but I think we need a, a much more evolved robo-advisory product, which does not exist right now. What do you think the future of wealth tech is in particular and in a wider context? What's the future of fintech? What comes next? There are many opportunities outside of broking and asset management. So with True Beacon, we have a new company called True Beacon. It's an asset management company focused on ultra HNIs across the world, not just Indian origin, but uh, you know, it could be a Frenchman living in Dubai, for example. We're trying to create a community of extremely evolved, sophisticated ultra HNI investors from across the world. And we're trying to disrupt asset management by being 100% client aligned. Uh, the asset management industry has had an issue, which is fund managers, distributors, brokers, everybody makes money immaterial of how well an investor is actually doing. So you as an investor might be losing money for the next five years, but everybody else will charge their fees and will continue to do so in all perpetuity. So we are trying to change that, be completely client aligned, 90% more efficient than the incumbents are right now. We have reduced the costs by 90% and we only charge a carry at the end of the year of 10%. So if you put in 100 and it becomes 110, we would charge you one as fee. How have you managed to cut the cost by 90%? Have you cut out the middlemen? We've cut out the middlemen, yeah. So we don't have distributors, we don't have uh, marketing, we don't have a sales team. Our logic with this company is we'll build a more efficient product and our clients who have signed up already or people who have been the first adopters of the product will go out and talk about it and we're hoping to market it organically in that way. You're talking about very high um, net worth individuals. Are they comfortable with investing their wealth on a fintech platform without the advice of fund managers and everything that comes with it? So the money is actually, it's a fund much like a hedge fund. So the money is being managed by a fund manager. They're okay with eliminating the advisor in between. So passive funds have done so much better than active funds in the last decade or two. And these ultra HNIs, however sophisticated they are, they been left footing the bill in a way because they have underperformed the market not because of the stocks that were picked but more because of the inefficient fees that were charged. So we're very hopeful of the fact that they will realize the value this platform has for them. Uh, outside of managing their money by allocating it to the public markets, we're a long short fund. We're also trying to build a network wherein these few hundred billionaires from across the world, we will connect on the platform, not just for investments into the public markets, but if the holding company of investor A from Africa can do some kind of work with the, the promoter of holding company B in, say, Singapore, for example, we will connect them on our platform and help them kind of grow their holding companies. So it's a very interesting concept. We've been around for a year and a half now. Uh, things have been great so far. It's been the best performing fund in India in the last uh, 16, 17 months. But the actual power, which will come from connecting people who are on the platform already, I think will only only bear fruit over the next year or two. So it'll be an interesting product and an interesting company to watch. And this is what brings you to the UAE? True Beacon. Exactly. So we're looking for collaborators, partners, people who want their money to be managed, much like a hedge fund, but 
all the ancillary services that we'll provide outside of them too, in terms of the network that we will bring of the other investors on the platform. So we're trying to change the asset management relationship as being a typical investor to a distributor to a fund manager to more creating a community and almost signing members onto the community who will help each other out, not just in, you know, sharing investing ideas or the investments that they might be doing, but also see if their individual holding companies can benefit from that network. I'm keen to know how the billionaires here compared to those in India. Yeah, very different. I think so the there are the traditional billionaires in India, but there are a lot of new age ones who have kind of been born out of the whole startup ecosystem. People who were uh, who didn't start off with much, but have suddenly gotten very lucky. Much lesser of that in the Gulf, in the Middle East. I think uh, you have a lot more traditionally rich people in the Middle East who have ancestral wealth, which has kind of been inherited or they're in traditional in- industries like, you know, oil and gas or hospitality. Or uh... Does that affect how comfortable they are with a platform like True Beacon or the kind of investments that they're interested in? I think they are. I would not just even equate Dubai or the Middle East to India, but I feel the most evolved uh, investors or people who understand the value of diversifying risk, it could be out of their own holding companies or real estate, are in the West. I think Silicon Valley in America has a set of investors who are kind of very, very evolved and they understand the value of diversifying out of their own companies and out of the traditional investments like real estate. But in the Middle East, much like in India, I think people are very closely attached to real estate. I think people in this ecosystem really like real estate as an investment. I think it is flawed and I I personally believe real estate is a very inflated asset in many geographies across the world. And uh, for families to have 60, 70% of their net worth in real estate is very wrong. They need more diversification in their portfolio. They need, you know, they need some gold in there. They need some fixed income. They need some equity exposure. Uh, It makes their portfolios not only more robust, but it gives them the liquidity to tide over uh, short-term fluctuations of volatility in the market, which the pandemic has taught us can happen at any point of time. But they are different. I think... I think the wealthy across the world have traits which are common, but when you kind of segregate them across geographies, there are many dissimilarities based on which region they belong to. Now you're in a spa- in a place where you're catering to the ultra wealthy and you're also catering to the day-to-day average uh, trader. So how do you think these platforms have to be differentiated? Are, are, can you use the same approach on both of them? Does a digital first approach work for the ultra wealthy investor? No, it doesn't. We approach them uh, differently. We have a different team working on the broking and a different team working on the asset management. Uh, the wealthy like a little bit of handholding and they would not they would not probably be the kind of people who will seek out the right information online. They would need somebody to correspond with them. So we approach it differently. We're looking at it as two completely different enterprises. Uh, the ethos at the at the very bottom of it all is still reducing inefficiencies in the marketplace and finding a more efficient way to solve the same problem. But the approach is very different. Uh, just want to go back to the story of Zerodha. So I've never personally used the product, but it's absolutely fascinating to me that you were able to get this company to a unicorn status from the from the latest reports. 
without any funding, completely bootstrapping the business. How does that happen? How did you visualize and how did you set into motion the company becoming what it is today from day one? So honestly, Manish, we did not. Uh, I mean, so much of this journey has been about luck and being in the right place at the right time. Uh, one thing we knew from the very beginning is we did not want to be answerable to a bunch of VCs and PEs and investors who would second guess everything we did immaterial of, you know, making money or being more profitable. I think that was very clear. When you allow for too many investors to come in, it makes you inherently less agile as a company. Uh, if you have to run whatever you're doing by a board of 10 different people, you might take a month to push a decision through versus, you know, doing it internally where you can make decisions in five minutes. So we were very we were very, very focused on remaining nimble and being able to change from the very beginning. And we ran a very lean model from the very beginning. So we've always been profitable, you know, from year one, the end of year one. We've never really uh, done any marketing. We do not believe in uh, short-term freebies to attract clients. Uh, a lot of the startups today spend the money they raise in client acquisition. I think you can have like, you know, short-term bonuses or freebies that you provide your clients, but the stickiness of that client is not very high. Tomorrow, if another competitor gives him a bigger freebie, he switches very quickly. So I think focus on the product focus on the service that you're providing. Uh, don't worry too much about stuff like, you know, valuations and uh, getting a marquee investor on board because often startups don't realize you're giving up uh, what was the key to you having been successful in the first place, which is your ability to change and be nimble. Nikhil, any plans for Zeroda to come to Dubai? Uh, it's not a very big market, Manish. I think uh, not. I mean, we would come in to get traders to invest into India, but for the local markets there, they're not very liquid. I think the markets in the stock markets in Dubai is like what 80 odd companies and barely any liquidity. So it might not kind of justify the cost of bringing it there. I also came across a stat online which says that you as a business have a 40% net profit margin. Now that's uh, being in the venture industry, That's uh, that sounds almost insane to me because I mean, let alone FinTech, we don't see any startup, even a software business, any business have margins like that. Visa, I think Visa and MasterCard are the only businesses which have similar margins to you. So is that, do you attribute that to not having venture investors who force you to blitz scale? Have you had a philosophy with the business right from the start? How have you managed a feat like this? I would say focus on product and not having a marketing and a sales team. Uh, so our very ethos is whatever revenue we get, we kind of pour it all back into building a better product or improving the services we have. And we don't worry too much about if the client will come. We are like, if we have the better product, hopefully the client will come. So we don't go out there, put any marketing ads, or we don't try to sell ourselves. We don't have a call center, which does, you know, cold calling and tries to convert customers or whatever. Uh, I think that's where we save most of the margins versus other, uh, other startups. I think the cost of acquisition is literally zero with us. So how do you actually acquire customers? Is it just through word of mouth? It's just word of mouth, yeah. That's incredible. So you must have a fantastic product. Yeah. Yeah. So we focus on the product and don't worry about the rest. You can't grow without in that way, um, without having someone recommend you. So that's incredible. And Nikhil, I want to take it back, actually. I want to understand what your day-to-day -day life is like 
talk us through your typical day if there is such a thing yeah sure so my typical day i get into the office maybe an hour before the markets open which is typically 8:15 8:30 a.m in india uh, the indian markets kind of end at about 3:30 p.m so i'm fairly engrossed up until then uh, managing money running a broking asset management business you know talking to new clients all of that uh, beyond 3:30 i think a lot of the time is dedicated to new things which we have just started it be true beacon or any other project that we might be working on and my day ends with going to the gym and then going to bed it's pretty uh, repetitive actually what time do you wake up i wake up at about 7 7:30 a.m that's refreshing cuz a lot of these founders i speak to wake up at like 4 or 5 i think i make up for it over the weekend so if i have the opportunity to catch up with a bunch of friends over the weekend i definitely do that and you know everybody needs a break how did you survive through the lockdown and the pandemic did your routine change at all not really actually i mean we were in essential services in india because the government uh, wanted the stock markets to stay open so they allowed for us to go into the office every day so nothing changed i think uh, we are one of the few industries which got very lucky during the lockdown because a lot more uh, traction not just for us as a broker or asset manager but across the board globally even a lot more people have started investing and trading over the last 7 months so we've all benefited from the pandemic it does not sound like the right thing to say but we're one of the few industries which have kind of benefited from it we heard a lot about that of people becoming first time traders and getting onto these platforms but you know a lot of people lost money because they didn't know what to invest in or how to invest what are your tips for someone who's never done this has you know a bit of money and they're interested in this how do you start simple is better than complicated try to shy away from products which have too many structures and complications going on keep it simple you know buy companies that you understand if you like apple iphone go buy apple if they're doing something right with their new phone uh if you use google a lot and you're a you know you use them for email and drive and a bunch of other products they have go buy into that company uh stay away from unnecessarily complicating your portfolio or your investment profile stay away from small cap companies which are maybe not following the highest level of compliance and governance in their own companies uh do not leverage i think leverage is a killer especially for new investors because people with $100 buy equity worth $1000 and a 5-10% move can kind of wipe them out so do not leverage and maintain ample diversification do not buy you know too much of any one stock but maintain a portfolio where you have a few good stocks you have some fixed income you have some commodity in the portfolio so diversify i think these would be the tips to a beginner who's just starting the investment process do you have any stock picks for us <laughs> that is the hardest thing to do manish i think i think in trading you kind of become a better trader or you evolve as a trader uh, the day you realize you can't call what will happen to a stock so nobody knows what will happen tomorrow nobody can predict what will happen 6 months down the line uh, be it a market or economy or a stock for that matter but when you come to the realization that you can't call what will happen tomorrow you start better preparing for the different scenarios that you can you know model into your system i think that makes you 
start to become a better trader because typically most people walk into the market they think i will buy stock x at 100 and sell it at 150 or 20 or 200 that never really works out because nobody can predict the future. That's great advice from you. My last question to you is how do you become a billionaire? If there's a founder that's kind of starting off with the intention of becoming a unicorn, how do you do it besides cutting out a sales and marketing team? Pick the right industry, I would say. Also, I mean, you know, people often call, you know, people in our ecosystem billionaires and words like that. But you have to realize, A, nobody has access to that much capital. You might be making X in profits every year and a multiple of that will get you to a billion dollars. But nobody, I would say like, you know, without the exception of maybe one, two percent who are called billionaires have access to that much liquidity. Often this capital is tied up in, you know, different uh, ventures and uh, it's a factor of uh, P ratios and multiples that your industry is getting at that point. But one one big uh, point that I have realized in my journey is the whole picking an industry before its inflection point. If you're able to time an industry and pick an industry with significant scale, I think for your company to scale and become really large are very important. Also geographies. I think India is a huge opportunity just by virtue of the number of people we have. I mean, we probably have more people in Bangalore than there are in Dubai, you know? And there are like, dozens of cities like that in India. So geography and picking the right business, timing with the business, I think would. Thank you, Nikhil. Did you still play chess, by the way, for fun? Uh, no, no, I haven't actually. I mean, I might have played casually, you know, uh, with someone I ran into, but really haven't played chess in over a day. All right, thanks a lot, Nikhil. Yeah. Really appreciate this. Thank you. So that was fascinating. What really struck me was just how calm he seems. He was super chill, right? He was, we've not, uh, him saying that he wakes up at 7 a.m. every day. Like usually you have these uh, startup founders who talk about how they begin the day at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., they're setting up these standards and he's, he's completely okay with saying that he, he wakes up at 7 a.m. He seems really normal and nice. Yeah, not like... that other founders are not nice, <laughs> but it's, I, th I thought it was quite refreshing. Anyway, um, I think we should take his advice, start investing um, and become billionaires ourselves. Let's do it. Manish, it's been a pleasure having you on this podcast with me. It's been great. Thanks for having me. And thanks to you for listening. You can listen to all of our podcasts on wonder.com or through your podcast provider.